I'd like to welcome everyone to the 10th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and are free and open to the public. I'm Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'll serve as the host for these discussions. The link to the discussion is the same every weekday. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts, as well as a transcript, which will be made available for today's discussion. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. I will also make the link and these resources available via Twitter at my handle, at US of Disaster. Monday, my guests are Cindy Ermas, a history professor at the University of Texas, San Antonio, who's working on a book, The Great Plague Scare of 1720, Disaster and Society in the 18th Century World. And we'll also be joined by Christiana Fryer, a history professor at Goldsmiths University of London, who's working on a book, The Measure of Empire, Disaster and British Imperialism in Post-Emancipation Jamaica. It's gonna be a day to take a longer view into the past and see what we might pull forward to make sense of our time in the age of COVID-19. As of today, there are globally 586,000, confirmed cases of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. That's the global count, up from 521,086 cases yesterday. 97,226 of those are in the United States, up from 79,785 yesterday. There are now a total of 1,478 deaths reported in the U.S., up from 1,124 yesterday. One thing that's been on my mind a lot um, looking at these kind of statistics is um, things that we saw with September 11 and then also with Hurricane Katrina and I remember after September 11, there's a public health researcher uh, in New York City at NYU named Robin Gershon. Um, and she did a study of evacuation behavior from the World Trade Towers. And she talked um, particularly in that study about people who had disabilities, mobility impairments, um, and they didn't get out of the towers. The plans for evacuation of the towers just didn't include them. And we saw this also with Hurricane Katrina, that the disaster plans that emergency managers, health officials were working with at that time, they may have had some sort of, uh, certainly the people were committed to trying to help everyone, but the plans were not in place to try to meet those vulnerable populations who had special needs. We hope that we've moved a lot further than that, and I know that that's true in emergency management today, that there's a much greater attempt to try to make preparations for vulnerable populations in disaster, and yet we know there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to disabled populations. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. So let me introduce my two guests who are experts in this area and in disability history and disability studies more generally. Amy Hamray is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Health and Society and American Studies at Vanderbilt University, where they also direct the Critical Design Lab. Hamray works in the fields of disability studies, science and technology studies, and design theory. 
They're author of Building Access, Universal Design and the Politics of Disability. Their current book project, Enlivened City, explores the health politics of urban design. Second guest, Amy Slayton, is a professor of history at Drexel University. She holds a degree from the University of Pennsylvania in the history and sociology of science and has written on the history of technological labor, engineering education in the United States with a focus on race, disability, and LGBTQ identities in those settings. Her last book traced the whiteness of engineering in the United States through the 20th century, and right now she's writing a critical history of the idea of STEM diversity over the last 30 years. So, Amy Hamray and Amy Slayton, hello, and thanks for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you. Hello, thanks for having us. So I wanna remind everyone to please post your questions in the chat and we'll get to them throughout the conversation today. So please go ahead and start generating questions. And I wanna ask my first question to Amy Hamray. So one thing that's been very striking in the COVID-19 pandemic because of the social distancing that's been mandated in many places and literally sheltering in place that's been mandated in many places, we've actually seen accessibility become widely available for non-disabled people. The ability to work from home, for example, using distance and digital technology. What do you think are some of the, I'd like to get your sense of that and some of the implications of this um, radical change that we've seen even in just the last two weeks across the country. Yeah, so thank you so much for that question. So um, the set of practices that we might call remote access, so video conferencing, uh, conference calls, um, live transcription or notes in a Google Doc, things like that, are things that disabled and chronically ill people have been using for a long time to organize and learn and um, build community. And there are also things that have sometimes been denied to us um, by institutions of education or um, very frequently conferences are very difficult to Skype into or Zoom into. Um, and we'll see if that changes after this. But a lot of disabled people have been pointing out um, this very interesting phenomenon that actually shows a lot of inequalities around uh, the values that we assign to disability and non-disability that when um, these technologies came to be necessary for a kind of larger mainstream population, not necessarily a disabled population, then the shift to them um, happened very rapidly and def definitely with some frictions, like people are learning how to teach online and things like that. Um, but there wasn't the same response uh, that there often is to disabled people, which is that we don't have the resources for that. Um, the internet here is not good enough for that, et cetera. And so one of the things that we're seeing is that a lot more people are getting trained to do remote access. And I'll be curious to see, um, you know, in the post-pandemic world, what happens with that. Do we just go back to learning on campus? Are we going to mostly um, be online still? What's going to happen? Um, but then also the larger question for me is um, why is it that it takes something like this for disabled people's access needs to be met? And um, the answer to that has to do with the devaluation of disabled people. And we see that in the pandemic in a broader sense of um, disabled people being assumed to be slated for death um, 
devalued in triage situations. There are reports of people's medications being denied to them or ventilators that were previously available being denied to them. So all of these things are um, connected. And some people are suggesting that if we had begun from a place of valuing disabled people and the way that disabled people work and move through the world, then um, some of the uh, disparities and resource shortages and things like that that we're encountering today um, may not exist to such an extent that we would be in such a healthcare crisis as well. You mentioned this concern about going back to some sort of normal, uh, and I want to sort of ask you a little bit more about that, Amy Hemray, to start, and maybe Amy Slayton, if you want to speak to that as well, which is we do see institutions making what to them um, are characterized as extraordinary accommodations now. Um, is there any precedent of that in the past that we can go from? Because the concern is when the disaster passes, there will be going back to normal, which is to say a less expensive way for these institutions um, to do business. Do we have historical parallels to work with here at all, even at a smaller scale? Um, you know, some of the um, historical precedents I can think of are things like the brief popularization of the MOOC, which is the massive online course. Um, which some universities thought was going to democratize education and um, you know, all these things. And MOOCs had issues related to the number of people who were enrolled in them and um, the fact that it was impossible to grade and um, there were all these technological problems with them. But in this moment, people are asking the question of, is it security against the future to start planning our curriculum to be online in the fall since we don't really know what's going to happen? Um, and I guess, you know, they're in disability communities too, even though this isn't necessarily an education, um, people have been shifting to these online models for a long time because in our communities, there are a lot of people with chronic illnesses who are not able to be physically present. And so um, that is sort of a microcosm of what a broader society could do. And in those cases, it's really focused on like mutual aid and interdependence, people transcribing for each other, people providing resources like in multiple formats and things like that. Mm -hmm. Amy Slayton, I wanted to come to you with a question. Um, so I've certainly heard uh, the discourse around the idea that disabled people make up a statistically minor part of the population. And so, you know, as we think about planning or design decisions that um, it can't be a fair use of public resources to only cater to a small population. And I know that there was that discourse in the United States, certainly around the time of the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but of course, and it goes on as well. I wonder if you could, you know, bring a historical lens here, um, shine some light on that claim or even respond to it if you care to. Yeah, and thank you for that question, because I think it's it's a question that doesn't immediately sound like it's been raised by the pandemic, but it's created the foundation from which we are experiencing the pandemic. And I think that the claim that it's just, it isn't consonant with how we see, um, you know, a majority-led culture, uh, majority, you know, majority-chosen um, elected officials, majority-chosen um, you know, uses for our tax dollars. Um, it, it it reminds me very much, sorry, pet pet moving through. Yeah. <laughs> pet, pet action. Um, 
That's the Sorry. best we've seen in two weeks. We've seen pets, but that's the that's the most uh, dramatic. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Sure. Um, on one level, that that idea that it's just oh, it's just the category of disability just represents a small number of people, so they can't possibly be the the basis for decision making and resource distribution. It reminds me a lot of older anti civil rights, you know, anti affirmative affirmative action, anti set aside. Um, arguments that are, of course, still with us, but I think it's it it kind of hides the the real problem, which is where does that notion of counting people come from? And I think it comes from a much deeper commitment in the U.S. of of trying to figure out who deserves uh, care, who deserves security, who deserves um, you know housing and education, and of course many many uh, groups that we refer to as minority groups are in fact minoritized communities. They're made into, the, the numbers are made meaningful um, so that they don't just seem deserving. So women, people of color, you know, queer people, immigrants, they've all fallen into that minority category, which is often just a synonym for, for undeserving. So I think the very experience of the sureness among abled people in saying that, oh, it's rare or unusual to be disabled. It's a, it's a statistically small experience in the United States is, is not the thing we should be answering even by saying, but every single person deserves, but no, we should say, why count? Why, why count? And of course, it, it misses their argument misses entirely the kinds of points that Amy's made so beautifully, which is that which considers you know, justice and, and accessibility and care for all, you know, for disabled people brings those things for all. But I think the very notion that we should be um, measuring and comparing relative worth and relative deservedness is, is the core problem. And really, really, if we would only look at it, we'd see that there. One of the real challenges, uh, I think always to analyzing disaster and to try to talk to people critically about disaster is that we treat disasters as special. They, we treat them as events. We treat them as unique moments that somehow don't reflect society as it, as it normally is. Um, and I guess I'd like to get both of you to sort of think with me a little bit about that. And Amy Slate in particular, you know, just building on what you just said, that um, you know, the responsibilities of public authorities, um, if we treat a disaster as an exceptional case, then how do you make the case that it shouldn't be a numbers game about saving the largest number of people in the most expeditious way possible? How do you make um, a claim for what have often been treated as special rights, special civil rights in the midst of a, in the midst of a disaster? If we can't get that kind of discussion correct in quote unquote normal times, how do we expect to get that discussion right in the middle of a, of a global pandemic? I, I mean, I would just say, Scott, I think that the field that, that you're active in is in, you know, historical disaster studies has made it clear that that is a very powerful and politicized choice to say that this is the disaster, so it's different, so it's unique and, and not to recognize the nature of slow disaster and, and structural inequities that lead to that. But I think there's a, um, and again, as a historian, I feel like I sort of, I give myself a pass to, to speak in long terms and wide landscapes and not necessarily always practicalities. But I do think that the nature of disaster, as we're seeing it play out right now, is that we need to not ask questions about anything that is not 
putting our lives at risk in the next 10 minutes. And that's how we got here. And so I think, and I can talk more about this later if we're interested, but I think that really longstanding ideas about, again, about deservingness of, of care and, and security in this country come in, but also ideas of, of, of you know, of what's it's, what it's okay to do in service of capital, what it's okay to do in a capitalist democracy and that is to protect wealth, and that is to valorize what appears to support productivity and very narrowly defined. And I think that if we cannot ask those, those questions about meaning, those questions about value, we will always be fighting the last disaster. We'll always be, which is an odd thing to say in the era of climate change, because it's never going to end. It's never ending, right. It's never ending, yeah. But I think we can't ask values. We're always stuck in the in the emergency. Well, let me bring that question to you, Amy Hemray, this, this problem of, you know, disaster logic, if you will, and how that maybe even further exacerbates problems of disability justice, because on the one hand, you know, the, the rhetoric has always been, I mean, it's sort of part of the popular culture that in the middle of the disaster, you know, it's women and children first, by extension, that should mean, um, you know, somehow bringing some measure of extra care for vulnerable populations. But the reality often seems to me, I mean, even that formulation is problematic, but the reality to me also seems to go against that. Can you, can you help us see, see it through your eyes in terms of what's happening here? Yeah. Um, so one thing I've been thinking about as you all have been speaking is the question of how something comes to be understood as a problem that needs intervention. And in the case of disability, um, either disabled people are treated as um, a problem, like a drain on society, um, or some sort of like disqualified state that uh, requires elimination or cure, um, or in kind of early disability studies, there was a, a concept called the social model, um, which said that the problem is society, not individual disabled bodies. And so in the case of, um, you know, something like a disaster, right now we are seeing like global mass disablement. And people aren't just dying because they are becoming disabled, they're dying because we don't have the infrastructure to support life um, and we don't have the healthcare systems that are going to support severely disabled people um, who are immunocompromised or who um, are unable to breathe because of coronavirus. And so um, thinking about like the disaster in terms of the infrastructure rather than the bodies is an important part of this um, because on the one hand, like we want to highlight who is made most vulnerable. Um, and in the example that you gave, the kind of women and children first thing is, uh, you know, it operates under the presumption that women and children are vulnerable and require protection. Um, and we could say like disabled people right now are the most vulnerable, um, but also, you know, who has the most insight into the changes that need to be made in order to ensure our collective survival. Um, there are disabled people who have been working on the problem of access to ventilators um, and access to masks and things like that in other contexts um, and doing that in a way that now they are using toward helping our communities survive. And so, you know, like the, from, like a, from the perspective of a vulnerable person, disasters happening every day or these apocalypses are just kind of continuing. Um, they're not novel, but there are things that people 
know to do about them if they've had the experience of living through it. Um, part of that is like shifting away from these ableist ideas about disabled people like being undeserving of life and resuscitation because actually like we know how to create futures in which we're all going to be alive and that's not being valued right now. I wanted to, Amy Hamray, stay with you about this. You mentioned the ventilators and the, and the masks. Um, are there particular concerns right now about shortages of those because they're being pulled into the medical system and that people who have chronic disabilities who may need those masks or ventilators or the chloroquine, um, they're not uh, going to have access to those things? Yeah, so um, I've been seeing kind of like anecdotal stories about this all over the place. Um, but one person who had lupus um, shared a letter from their insurance company saying, thank you for your sacrifice. We're taking away this medication because we're going to use it for coronavirus. And there's apparently actually not a lot of evidence that it is effective because all of this is happening so quickly. Um, there are definitely shortages of ventilators or ventilators being taken away from elders and disabled people in hospitals and given to younger people um, who are previously able-bodied. And um, so, you know, the thing about this is that these are material circumstances that could be changed. There's nothing inherent in the structure of physics that says there can only be a certain number of ventilators. And um, really the scarcities are created by the system of medical ableism and capitalism. And so um, bringing a disability justice analysis to that is really important because disability justice is always about asking the question of if we have been made to believe that our only the only people who ought to live are those who productively contribute to like the gross domestic product, um, then entire populations of people are slated for killing basically. And that is what is happening right now. This, just to build off of, of what Amy Hamray is saying, Amy Slayton, I mean, I'm thinking even this discourse that's been going on the last few days about the Defense Production Act and um, why won't President Trump, he said he will invoke it, but he hasn't. And even just this morning, he sort of tried to invoke it by tweet, which is not actually, I don't think how that's done, but you know, I'm not a lawyer, but, um, but one of the, reactions to that has been, well, the real risk that he runs in actually scaling up production of what's needed, which would not exacerbate these problems that Amy Hemre is talking about, is this terrible scenario we imagine in which we're stuck with too much stuff, that somehow the Defense Production Act would, would enable an overproduction where a market doesn't exist, and that that's the right. real hardship here. I heard it framed exactly that way this right. afternoon, and I it, like many moments in the last two weeks, I had to literally stop for a minute, yep. like a cartoon and shake my head. But yeah. I don't know, can I get some reaction from you on that? Because that seems to be the, yeah. back to Amy Hemray's excellent point, we have to be thinking about this as the political economy and the infrastructure, right. not one-off right. cases of individuals being nice or not nice or some sort of yeah. right. civil and, rights history in that yeah. sense. And I think, I have to say, I think it's one, for a historian, I think it's one of the, ter the terrible risks of, of Trump's self-presentation that I keep forgetting, which is that he, he makes us focus on the individual and forget that he represents a vast 
and long-standing set of social structures. But um, I think that that what what a historian might say is that um, the the inherent violence of industrial capitalism in the United States goes back to before anyone was even using those words, and the notion that there were certain people for whom wealth was a natural you know endowment, and other humans of different of different skin color or different you know. I don't know, imagined biological, you know, taxonomic labels were, were there to supply that wealth, to build that wealth. And that, it may sound very long ago and far away, but it, it's exactly the template that we work with. And I think that the idea that you could formulate the notion that the markets, the market's needs are what should be determining the number of ventilators that roll off a uh, an assembly line, which, by the way, is an assembly line run by robots, not humans, lest, lest you are picturing in your head River Rouge during World War II. Right. Um, but the idea that the markets need to be served is such a, it's such a pernicious myth. I think it is the most violent myth of, the, of our day. And it is accompanied by the delusion that, that each person um, gets what they work for, no more and no less. So if you are a good working body and you and you get your kids to grow up and, and work and everybody, you know, lends their labor to capital, you should have a ventilator if you need one, right? So it's a it's a self-confirming set of logics that build on the notion of endowment and deficit, right? Ability and non-ability, non right? And all in the service of wealth, in the service of the capital. And again, it sounds abstract, but these are not abstractions in the minds of historians and anthropologists, sociologists. These are like these are the algorithms of life in America mm -hmm. that are are the decisions are being made from not just every day now, every minute across the country. The decisions are being driven by that algorithm, and I think Amy described a lot of them very, very clearly and very painfully for us. Yeah. I'm going to regroup here for a second. We're talking today on COVID calls about disability and the pandemic. And we're talking with Amy Hemray and Amy Slayton. And I want to um, let you know one other thing. The chat's not working right right now. So if you would actually, if you have a question, put it in the Q&A. Or you can also um, just tweet your question and tag me at US of Disaster. And I'll try to get to your question, OK? Um, so I actually want to get to a question here from Yana. And this comes back to. Um, something you both have kind of touched on indirectly, but her question is this, to what extent are members of the disability community being included or consulted in the government's emergency response to COVID-19? She's asking government at any level, which that might be an interesting thing to think with, differences between federal, state, and local. But to what extent are those communities being consulted? Are there countries also outside the United States doing a good job working with the disability community at this time? I don't know if either one of you know anything about that but it'd be good to get that on the table um so this is amy hemry speaking i you know so much of this is moving very quickly so it's really hard to know but i can say that in pretty much every policy proposal that i have seen or even social movement strategy kind of petition and things like that that I've seen disability in terms of disability community and disability rights and justice has not been um, included. And I've been very interested in why that might be the case given that 
this pandemic is absolutely a disability issue. Um, and I, I think that, you know, um, there are broader structural reasons why disabled people have been excluded from political processes and stuff. There are attempts kind of through the United Nations and um, in kind of cooperation with FEMA and those sorts of agencies to include dis disabled people in disaster planning, uh, to include disabled people in disaster planning for climate change um, and related things like uh, forest fires in California, et cetera. Um, but I haven't seen anything that I would find satisfactory or like a model that we should be following. Mm. Amy Slayton, any perspective on that? I think that, I, I mean, I, I know less about this directly, um, but I think, and, and I know there is some activity around the climate change, you know, stuff, and I, I have been aware of lots of places where we see uh, policy discussions about climate change, this sort of, you know, meant to bring in diverse voices and be inclusive, and it's remarkable how often the category of disabled people is not on the list and there's a lot of set talk of of inclusion and voice and and it's just it's it's remarkable that it remains even a non-category at, at this point but yeah so it's kind of confirming by Amy Henry, let me let me ask you because you raised this issue, um, or we were talking about this issue, whether or not people with disability community are being brought into formal planning. So, if if to an extent they're crowded out of that, then what are you seeing in terms of mutual aid and collective care in this moment? You know, so the community taking care of itself. Can you give us a sort of a an insight? And, and I'm curious. I think we all are to know who who you listen to, who you interact with, um, to keep connected with those communities and bring us a little bit into their discourses, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so pretty much um, as soon as the pandemic was declared a pandemic, people all over the country started to organize mutual aid. And I've been um, part of mutual aid organizing here in Nashville, and every city seems to have a network. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking to organizers in other cities. And pretty much everyone I talked to was a disabled person, which I thought was really interesting. And this is because actually we organize mutual aid all the time. We don't always call it that, but it's how we live our lives. And um, a lot of disabled people um, live through networks of caretakers um, to whom they also like contribute in different ways. And then there are these examples of um, mutual aid networks are sometimes called pods um, that are uh, formed around disability in response to crisis. So an earlier network mm -hmm. that was created is called the Disability Justice Culture Club, and it's based in the Bay Area. And um, last year, when there were forest fires and the electrical company shut off the electricity in the Bay Area and people who used ventilators and other devices couldn't access power, um, this was a group of people who were organizing to like get folks access to generators, um, distribute masks um, because there was so much pollution and there was a shortage of N95 masks. Um, 
And, and so that group is still working in this capacity. And it's really interesting because the masks are, they continue to be an issue, but they're like making hand sanitizer, they're making masks and handing out to people. Um, and the sort of methodology that they're working from, which has become popularized in re recent mutual aid work, but comes from disability justice organizers is pod mapping. And this is a concept that comes from Mia Mingus, um, who is a disability justice and transformative justice organizer based in the Bay Area. And it's basically a tool for figuring out like who your community is that you can call upon um, if you are in an emergency situation or a slow disaster and then who else do you need to bring in and what relationships do you need to forge in order to get like your basic needs met and also to be able to thrive and um, so a lot of people are using that not necessarily knowing that it comes from disability community but this is just sort of like what we do all the time and so in this moment we're also finding that there's a lot of leadership from disabled people around mutual aid and in places where the state is failing and the healthcare system is failing to provide for people well amy hamry let me stay with that for a minute because um i've been wanting to ask you more about history too i mean you talked about the pseg um you know infrastructure electricity infrastructure failure and the the ventilator need that that showed and i mean I mean, that, that's a quite recent example, but this idea of mutual aid for the disability community, is, is, is this really new or do, are there some historical lineage here that we, can, that we can point to in previous examples of disasters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think the whole history of like industrial workers is a history of mutual aid and mutual aid actually comes from you know, anarchism and anti-capitalism, but it's often these cases in which workers are subjected to terrible workplace conditions and then they provide for each other and organize in order to survive. But more recently in the history of disability, um, and actually there's a great documentary about this now on Netflix called Crip Camp that just came out two days ago. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, disabled people started to use mutual aid methods that they learned from the Black Panther Party in places like Berkeley, California, to create what is now called the Centers for Independent Living. And these are places where uh, disabled people provide services for other disabled people and um, build networks and communities and do skill shares here's how to fix your wheelchair, um, you know, here's like, I can do this for you, you can do this for me kind of stuff. And um, so it's really been going on for like 50 years already, at least in the United States in those specific activist contexts. And a thing the documentary does a really good job of highlighting is that once the skill of mutual aid was learned in these activist contexts, it enabled all of these other things to happen, um, like, sit-ins that led to the passage of major civil rights legislation or the enforcement of legislation. And so um, it's part of, mutual aid has been part of a broader constellation of strategies for disabled people. Is there a tie-in also to um, the history of, of veterans organizations with that as well? Definitely. Um, you know, veterans organizations, uh, they have wide-ranging political alignments, but many of them in the um, post-World War II era were leading the efforts towards public accessibility, um, like in buildings and cities. And some of those organizations fed into some of these more radical spaces, or there were disabled veterans who 
got to be around other disabled veterans and started to organize as well. So um, there, there is that, and there's the connection to like people surviving militarism and not being completely served by the VA system as well um, as like a place where people have developed mutual aid. That's amazing. I wanted to um, just acknowledge, I have a point here from Elizabeth Ann Reddy that she'd like to have links to some of these materials we're discussing and spelling of names so that she can chase it down uh, and cite responsibly, which I appreciate that. And after this uh, conversation is over, we'll make sure to get those those materials spelled out for people. Um, ah, Amy's Hamray is acting in real time here, thanks. Um, so I wanted to, um, Amy Slayton, come to you, and we've touched on this as well. This um, And this has been one of the themes of COVID calls is, um, as we think about research that spans over longer periods of time. And as we conceptualize, you know, we've talked about slow disaster today, um, which also sort of overlays, you know, the concept of chronic illness or disability as a longer term situation, but then trying to make sense of disaster as emergent or disability as somehow emergent. Um, and I wonder, so we have these sort of two scales that we're working with. And, you know, we're kind of at pains right now, I think, as scholars. Um, and I was in a session earlier today where I was asked point blank, well, what does all of your historical background do for us in this moment right now? They, were, they asked the question more kindly than that. But I mean, that's, that's kind of how I, how I take it. Can you, I mean, this is really for both of you, but Amy Slate, I'm going to ask you first. We're operating at these different different scales. How does disability history come to bear on disability present or this discussion we're having right now about the pandemic? Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a, um, it's a very challenging question for the reason I mentioned before, which is like, I don't, no one is waiting for me to produce a white paper. I guess I could if I wanted to, but mostly I'm just doing a lot of like storytelling and things like that. But as you actually pointed out on that call earlier today, you know, people often turn to historians or maybe disaster historians and historians of medicine and say, well, what do we know from the past? What can we learn from those past practices? And your point today was, we can do something very different. We can, we can, you know, remake the past as, as memorial, as narrative, even as grief and loss. And in that way, bring forward experiences of victims instead of, you know, instead of elite actors and institutions. So, so I, I think that's a really rich kind of thing to think about. What I've thought about before is that I think that when we, get our fingers on the pulse of those long-standing cultural commitments such as capitalism, extractive capitalism, and the notion that we can identify people um, as having relative amounts of, of um, capacity to contribute to an economy or to, to the culture um, that we derive from history. I think it can, first of all, we recognize it as a slow disaster, disaster in the making, but I think with that awareness, we can come into the new term, I mean, the, the short term, the near term, um, into our emergency, I think with, um, with the sense of what factors are operating. And it's funny, because I, I kind of think this is a bromide that, you know, Governor Cuomo offered us yesterday in his, his, his daily debrief about, um, we have to access our better angels, right? Except that I was thinking, that might be how you start in recognizing that we can choose to put aside these these long 
legacy behaviors of very unjust, very cruel, very violent categorizing of people and putting some people in the undeserving, un, you know, unneeded um, category of human. And you can pivot and imagine a different orientation, which is an orientation of care. Right. So the historian can point out the stubbornness, the sturdiness, the pervasiveness of these violent structural systems, which I hope enables actors in real time today to imagine that there's another option, which is an act of care, which is an act of, you know, um, listening to and amplifying leaders who act from care, not from capital, not from violence. Right. So I guess I, I, it sounds like an orientation or an attitude, but I think mm -hmm. history makes it clear the difference that can make and the possibility that pivot can make. Uh, I to think. Me, yeah. I mean, that's to me really powerful because it it shows that one of the one of the needs for scholars to do the kind of work you do is that you might have that historical perspective to know where the openings for activism might be. I don't know, Amy Hamre, am I being too optimistic here? Are we at a moment where activism is more enabled because we're in the midst of this, this disaster, particularly sort of thinking, you know, fast and slow, I guess, if you, if you will, do you feel somehow that there's an opening here? Uh, you're an activist as well as a scholar. You have a good perspective on this. Um, I, I love this question and I really want to believe that we are in a moment of productive friction that if we engage in it in the right ways could produce really positive futures. And I think the stakes are really high for the ways that we engage in this moment. Um, I feel, you know, right now doing mutual aid organizing, I feel heartened by the number of people who are showing up and wanting to help deliver groceries to their neighbors and things like that. And at the same time, I am frustrated often with the pervasiveness of ableist logics and um, really also just the, uh, the societal failure to deal with the legacies of eugenics and how that shows up not only in our policies, but in our activist communities. Um, and so I've been hearing a lot of weird stuff lately um, about, people saying like, oh, well, it's okay that all these people are dying because the earth is healing and stuff. And like, that is literally fascist. So um, I want this to be a moment in which people like listen to disabled people and, um, and really kind of try to imagine futures that have disabled people in them as a guiding strategy for activism. And I think it could happen. And there are a lot of people working really hard on that. Um, but you know, it's like activism, like policymaking is such a squirrely thing. Sometimes it's um, nonlinear for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's, it's just as uncertain as, as everything else right now. Scott, can I jump in with No, I was hoping you would. Yeah, because this, this yeah. sort of ter yeah. this turn towards the eugenics discussion is really provocative. Amy Slayton. Yeah, and I think that I think that it is not just that eugenics happened and is is constantly denied. Our histories of eugenics don't dismantle its impacts. Our our histories, our stories, our narratives are deeply implicated in its persuade its enduring persuasive thing. It's still seen as science. It was not such nice science, but it was science. It had 
It had stuff that was sciencey about it. It was just, you know, a little misguided. I mean, and I think that it, it reminds me that one of the one of the things that I think humanities and social science are empowering now, I think in ways they may never have before, is just that we really need to be honest about the uncertainty. We need to be honest about the squirrely, subjective, and slippery nature of how we understand, you know, societies and cultures to work, how we try to analyze political patterns, how we study war, how we study health, that these are all profoundly shaped by our own moment, our own position. And, and it's much harder to arrive at lessons and certainty and clarity and may not even be possible. But I think just, I have to think that acknowledging the difficulty is a major step beyond the notion that, well, there's a right, there's a right way to explain the past because that's awfully close to saying that there's a right person to explain the past and a single experience that needs mm -hmm. to prevail. So the messiness I think is something the humanities really help us help us hold on to. And without that, I think it's fascism. Not to, well, not to you know. Yeah, I think we have a consensus here that the kind of things yeah. we've heard this week about um, sacrificing, literally asking certain populations in society. So, I mean, even it's been framed as people over a certain age should somehow sacrifice themselves so that the Walmart can be open. Um, I mean, if you're willing to just make a statement like that, what do you think the implications then are for people who have special needs in the disability community? I mean, the, the writing, the fascist writing is on the, is on the wall. I want to stick with one thing, Amy Slayton, you said, though, because this ties back to something you said earlier. And this is um, an important, I think, methodology point for people in humanities and social sciences, because you said, I'm paraphrasing here earlier, but we need a better understanding of the present, but we need better pasts, too. I mean, I don't want to get all E.H. Carr on everybody here, and that's just a little signal to historians who suffered through their methods classes. But this notion that maybe this disaster, this pandemic, opens an opportunity also for us to go back and be looking for different sources in the past. Do you think this, does this pandemic might actually change the way we tell disability history? Amy Slayton first and then Amy Hamrick. I absolutely. And I think that we are in a, in a kind of exciting moment of breaking open the archive and questioning what can be an archive, what can be an evidence. Yeah, and we just can't go and, there, but yeah, we, just, we can't, we can't go there, but I don't know. We can, we can do a lot. Now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As we think about it. Absolutely. And I think that, I think that um, I'm very careful with any plan or strategy for inclusion because that's often a very assimilationist and a very self-consoling and welcoming sentiment for those of us who are everywhere we go is on the inside right so for me to say someone can you know come into my world is an awfully you know it's a dubious thing to say i can enact that but i think that the idea that we can have very very generative questions about what has counted as evidence and what you know, might is. I'd like to think that that's a that's got potential for for activism too. It's got it maybe frames it frames the possibilities of of experiences and values that have never been part of a policy world being made legible, being made being made whole for for others. Amy, does that make sense in a way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. 
So I want to remind people, Amy Henry, did you want to say more on that, on that point of how this pandemic I... might shape your own scholarship? I mean, there's so many things that are happening around this that I'm still processing since it's only been like a few weeks. But I, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is that there are these ways that disability history already pivots around disease outbreaks, like the polio epidemic mm. is a major part of the history of accessibility in the US, et cetera. Um, but also I uh, really, I really appreciate the moments in which it's possible to access an archive that takes us into those times and gives us a little bit of a sense of the continuity of despair or something like that. Like I also, um, something I've been doing really the last year or so is going back and reading a lot of deep ecologists and anti-nuclear activists also from the 70s and 80s is all the stuff that they're saying about um, how the the fate of humanity is really like hanging in the balance right now and what are we going to do about that is really resonant with like our, our climate anxieties but it's also anxieties about um, you know disablement and things like that and um, and so I would hope that one of the kind of hopeful paths forward would be that we would be able to like reach back into previous mm. pandemics and epidemics and learn about how people did imagine um, lives beyond them because it's a little bit hard to imagine that right now. Um, and yet here we are. So. Right, right. So we have about 10 minutes left. I want to encourage people to get their questions in for Amy Hamray and Amy Slayton and use the Q and A uh, uh, in the webinar, in the Zoom webinar, or if you'd like to use Twitter, you can uh, also do there, just tag me at US of Disaster. So um, I should have asked these questions more towards the beginning, but I was um, being a little selfish to get answers <laughs> to the things I wanted to hear. But I do want to hear a little bit about your um, institutional placements and your work there. Amy Hamray, I wonder, could you tell us just a little bit about the Critical Design Lab and the Mapping Access Project and some of the things you have going there at Vanderbilt? Yeah, um, so I teach at Vanderbilt and I run a lab called the Critical Design Lab um, that actually now is like multi-institution and we have members that are on multiple continents because people have uh, stayed on after graduation. Um, but we use uh, the framework of critical design, which is design that isn't just functional, but forces people to ask questions um, to get at disability justice issues. And we do design work around uh, critical mapping, so showing the inaccessibility of the built environment. Um, we make a podcast that is itself a design object, and it has all of these different built-in forms of accessibility. Um, we have a dance party project. We actually hosted a dance party on Sunday uh, called Remote Access that was pretty fun. and live audio yeah. description and um yeah all that stuff it happened over zoom um we do architectural design strats um we do graphic design like just all of these different design sites applying frameworks from disability studies to them um and the lab is also made up of disabled people um designers and students and activists um so there are eight of us right now and we collaborate on these projects and our next big thing is uh, a, an art exhibition called crip ritual which is about how disabled people use ritual to imagine better futures well, thank you for that amy slayton i wanted to come to you on this i know you've been teaching uh, disability studies courses at, at drexel university and also participating in preparation for a trip now delayed to take students to the 
Paralympics. Paralympics have been delayed one year. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like to teach disability history at an engineering school, not only engineering, but predominantly, and then the sort of preparation for the Paralympics? What's gone into that? So it's interesting. I mean, I think we're all kind of familiar when we, if we reflect on issues of social justice at all, we sort of all are familiar with the idea that, you know, identity works in different ways. It can be a very marginalizing technique. It can be a very empowering technique, right? And we know that this is profoundly, you know, complex and, and the moment, the time, the place can really make a difference in how identity and collectivity works. But I really tried to think it at Drexel, which is essentially, it's, it's not exclusively an engineering school, but it is very, it has a co-op culture. It's very vocationally focused. And I really tried to approach the teaching of disabilities histories and disability studies as something that really, I would rather it was not a discrete topic. I would rather it was not a discrete curriculum. Um, I would really like to um, simultaneously, you know, empower um, justice thinking around the history of of disability, what disabled people have, have encountered in the United States. But I also feel like the category itself is so often caught up in a kind of helping service um, uh, generous disposition in STEM fields, which will be helpful. We will help correct the problems. And it returns to what Amy described earlier as the association of disability with deficit, right? And it's a very, it's a very um, hard thing to challenge in eager young people who want to do the right thing and they want to be helpful and that's a good way to be in a society, right? But I've really tried to imagine that disabilities, history and disability content in the curriculum can be can be presented in a way that really helps us reflect on the category itself. So I've tried to see how we can integrate it. I didn't even like that word because that implies it's naturally a separate thing. But I've really tried to um, bring it into many, many other topics and disciplines and it's interesting because students get excited and they recognize that when you make the familiar strange in that way when you ask questions about the category of disability everything else looks different suddenly right um, if disability is not deficit if disability is not a bad thing you really start rethinking much so that's been my general kind of pedagogical adventure <laughs> the Paralympics class was fascinating because it was the first time we, we were kind of trying to get students who might not have thought too much about disabilities in a historical or, or kind of sociological or STS framing way um, to think about it. But they were often students who were also just interested in sport and they were excited to have sports and athletics um, incorporated into their college right. education. And I learned so much from, I mean, people who had done a great deal more in the world of sports and athletics than I ever had. And it, it raises it raises huge new questions. I think Amy probably have, were familiar with these questions long before I got to them, but, but it raises huge questions about capacity, about pleasure, about pain, about striving, about suffering, about achievement, because sports does all those things in our culture. So the Paralympics, which is elite disabled athletics, right? just it's got every access you might want to understand the role of you know disability non-disability 
bodies, um, uh, grit, striving, all the things, all the things are in it. So I'm very excited to keep that going and I hope take students when we get to the, get to the Paralympics. Yeah, I hope you get a chance to, I hope you get a chance to do that. I had the chance to take students in 2012 to the Paralympics um, and with my father who also came with us who has a cochlear implant and had been deaf before he had the cochlear implant and it was a profound experience um, and, and, and brought many of these issues home in a completely different register, which is, you know, the way we, through narrative, through competition, through sport, um, and it opened up possibilities for conversations and linkages and uh, that had not been there before we got um, really fascinated, became fans of the sport of goalball, which if nobody's seen the sport of goalball, I encourage you to check it out. Um, and, um, and when we got back, the students were trying to organize a goalball league um, and it was just really extraordinary. Um, uh, but it's not an easy sport to play and it's actually a little dangerous to play. Um, you know, it's, it's a sport that's played by athletes who are um, visually impaired and they rely entirely on their sense of hearing. Um, it's just an extraordinary sport. So uh, I wish you luck with that, with the Paralympics uh, for going next year. I know Amy Hemray, we just have a couple of minutes left. I don't know if you, I wanted to add anything to what Amy was talking about in her sort of pedagogical uh, challenges there at, at Drexel. You're teaching disability history, justice, disability studies at Vanderbilt. You're finding mm -hmm. similar um, challenges and rewards when you reach students there too? Yeah, um, so I teach in an interdisciplinary pre-med program and mm -hmm. all of my students are people who want to be doctors, but they also want to understand the social determinants of health. And um, so disability studies has a really interesting role in the curriculum there because it helps them think through, um, you know, questions like what does it mean to medicalize a problem that wouldn't otherwise be understood as a medical problem? Um, what are patients' rights? What are the, you know, what are the structures of healthcare systems and the politics of health and stuff? And so I've, it's been really satisfying for me, especially um, as so many of my students are engaging in advocacy more and more and understanding their role as future physicians as really like advocates also uh, to get them involved in disability activism and, um, and to observe how it shifts their frameworks around medicine as well. I want to get to one more question here. Just have a couple of minutes left from Evan. Evan's asking, um, do you have thoughts on agency? And if, so this is for Amy Hamray. Do you have thoughts on agency and effective action for disabled people during this crisis? As a disabled person, a lot of the well-popularized acts of mutual aid, like bringing groceries, for example, aren't possible for me. And perceived helplessness is contributing to the fear and despair of my community. How do we ameliorate that? That's an awesome question, Evan. It's really important because um, something we've talked about in my local mutual aid context is the idea of solidarity, not charity. A lot of these um, types of actions that are like bringing groceries and stuff are really more of a charity model, like I will do this for you. 
Um, and solidarity is about building relationships. And so in our local disability justice collective, what we're doing right now is we basically are just creating a phone tree um, where we check in on each other and provide emotional support um, or any other types of support that we understand ourselves as having. We also spend a lot of time um, explaining to people how to use the internet to organize and what tools are available because that's part of our skill set. And so, you know, part of pod mapping is figuring out what your um, what you feel good about offering to other people based on what you do know how to do, and then connecting with the people who may need those resources as well, even if you can't leave the house. Um, I'm not leaving the house right now, but I'm managing a listserv and hosting Zoom calls and getting people connected and stuff like that. Well, thank you for that. And I wanted to, I have about an hour's worth more questions here, but we're up on, we're up on time and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to actually bring both of you back. Um, I don't think this pandemic is ending anytime soon. And I think these issues are going to become the ones we're talking about today are going to become even more acute. I want to just uh, give a brief announcement Monday pandemics in history with Cindy Ermas and Christiana Fryer. And on Tuesday, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and the Defense Production Act with Peter Shulman. On Wednesday, Global Pandemic Preparedness with Andy Lakoff. On Thursday, Pandemic Politics with Julian Zelizer. And on Friday, we'll be talking about the global pandemic from the perspective of South Korea with Cheong John and Song Sik Wong. So it's going to be another full week next week. Um, thank you once again, Amy Hamre and Amy Slayton, for just a really um, provocative conversation, conversation. I learned so much from you and I wanna thank all of uh, our attendees as well. And we will speak with you back here on COVID calls on Monday. Thanks. Thanks. Thank, thank you, Scott, Scott and Amy. Bye. It's great to talk Bye. to you. Bye-bye.